I'm walking down the path in my garden and I have a suggestion for you on how you could help with global warming. With a large lawn, I found a simple way of making a big difference. I sold my ride-on mower and bought a top-of-the-range Cress robotic lawnmower. It runs off rechargeable batteries and uses cutting-edge technology to mow and maintain a lawn this size. The petrol mower has gone, and with it, the emissions. I actually don't know why I didn't sell the ride-on sooner. With the Cress robotic lawnmower, the lawn is actually looking better. The tiny grass cuttings fall into the grass roots, helping to fertilize the grass. And the family doesn't have to put up with the noise and fumes from the ride-on. And I've freed up more of my time to spend with them and in the garden. It's an easy step. And you could also be making that change today. Ask for Cress in your local garden machinery dealer. Or visit cress.com. A summer heat wave has arrived, and as the sizzling sun and sweltering humidity is beating down upon us, we've put together an episode to make you feel even hotter under the collar. The searing sting of a wasp, the scorching heat of chilies, and the sensational spice of ginger and turmeric. We'll be covering how and why you should grow these delicious plants, and whether or not you should be encouraging this predatory insect into your garden. With expert guests from food and garden writer Rekka Mystery, to UCL's Professor Serian Sumner and RHS Garden Hyde Hall's own horticulturist Matthew Oliver. Apply your SPF 50 because this one's a scorcher. Welcome to Gardening with the RHS with me, Gareth Richards. Wasps. We're all used to seeing bright yellow jackets with their distinctive yellow and black coats buzzing ferociously around our gardens. But have you ever heard someone swat one away and claim that they're pointless? Well, if you have, Professor Serian Sumner wants a word. Serian is a behavioural ecologist at UCL and the author of Endless Forms, The Secret World of Wasps. We caught up with her earlier to find out if these flighty insects deserve more than we give them credit for. My name is Serian Sumner. I am a professor of behavioural ecology at University College London and a lot of my research is about wasps. I spent the last 20 years studying wasps and I get fed up with people saying, why don't you study bees instead? Bees are really important, they're pollinators. And so the book is all about making a stand for the importance of wasps. And wasps have so many important roles in the environment, but they are also incredibly fascinating. And so I'm really hoping that my book will capture the attention of people who previously would have just flicked a wasp out the window at best or squashed it with a newspaper perhaps, but certainly never stood back and wonder and looked at it and watched it, which of course is what we do with bees. weren't always so maligned, so hated by humans. One of the things I really enjoyed doing in writing my book was reading some of the old books written in the late 1800s, early 1900s by the naturalists who would spend their time watching wasps. It was a very acceptable, respectable thing to do. I like to call these naturalists from the past the wasp whisperers because they really had a very magical relationship with these wasps. And perhaps one of the most famous wasp whisperer is Jean-Henri Faber, a Frenchman, who was actually a school teacher 
who was fascinated with the natural world. And some of his observations on solitary wasps remain accurate today in their descriptions of what wasps do. And so he describes in his books and his writings how he would watch these wasps hunt caterpillars. And he describes it with such drama. There's one scene in one of his books where he describes how he'd found an Ammophila digger wasp and he was lying on the ground watching her dig a burrow. And he needed to find a caterpillar so that he could observe how she paralysed the caterpillar because these wasps paralyse them with their sting. They don't kill them, they paralyse them so that they can then put them underground and lay an egg on it and seal it up and then the egg will hatch and then feast on the caterpillar over a period of weeks. And in order to not lose the wasp but also ensure he could get some caterpillars, he recruits his family. So his wife and kids are all running around the garden trying to find caterpillars until eventually one of them collapses from heat stroke. He doesn't care about his child. He's more interested in, where are the caterpillars? I need the caterpillars for my Ammophila. And then he starts to watch his wasp a little bit more and he realises that she's drumming on the surface of the soil with her antenna and he's lying right beside her. You can get really close to these insects. And so he starts to dig where she's been drumming and he digs a bit and then he steps back and then she drums a bit more and he digs and she drums and this process goes on for a, a few hours but eventually together with the wasp and John Henry Faber they dig up a caterpillar and it's quite far below the soil and so the wasp had taught John Henry Faber where to find the caterpillar. I think it's just such a beautiful relationship. I can't imagine anyone taking the time to do that these days and let alone deciding that heat stricken family was not important. They still had to find the caterpillar for his wasp. <laughs> so these naturalists of the past, they realised that wasps were really important. They weren't a pest, they didn't regard them as pests. They regarded them as an important part of ecosystems. And in some of their writings, they even, well, they suggest the idea that maybe these wasps are critical in ecosystems in helping regulate populations of other insects. And it's astonishing that 150 years later, we've still really hardly got any research in that area at all. Our understanding of how the role of wasps in these ecosystems and how they regulate insect populations is practically unstudied. And that's shocking if you compare the amount of research that we have on bees and their role in ecosystems, which we can actually put a monetary figure on. We know that pollination services of bees are worth $250 billion a year. We know nothing about the predatory value of wasps in that respect. So wasps in your garden are your friendly pest controllers. They are gardeners' friends. And so the things that they're eating in your garden will probably be the things that you would otherwise be trying to get rid of. And you might perhaps be trying to use some chemicals to get rid of them. So those could be caterpillars on your lettuces and cabbages or your prize roses or aphids on your tomato plants or other bugs and beetles that you just simply don't want in your garden. Wasps are likely to be hunting them. And particularly so, the common wasps that you see, the social wasps, the yellow jacket wasps. And the reason is that the diets of these social wasps that we find in the UK are very generalist, whereas the solitary wasps tend to be prey specialists. There'll be particular species that hunt particular species of spider or caterpillar. The social wasps are much less fussy and they will hunt whatever is in abundance. So if you happen to have a huge outbreak of caterpillars on your lettuces one day, 
you can guarantee that the wasps will be in there coming to put it right. But then next week, you might have an attack of the aphids and the wasps will be in there putting it right. If you've got a wasp nest in your garden, it's unlikely that they'll get rid of all of the pests on your lettuces or your tomatoes because they will always try and hunt what's most abundant because it's the most efficient way to hunt. And because they're not fussy, there's no reason why they should work particularly hard. But that's really good in terms of maintaining a healthy ecosystem because it means they're creaming off the excess and keeping the populations in check so that nothing is too abundant. But at the same time, it's very unlikely that wasps will in any way contribute to the declines of any insects locally. So I often get asked, oh, wasps are hunters. Are they one of the causes for insect declines? The answer is no. <laughs> And in that way, they're your perfect organic approach to controlling pests in your garden this summer. I would love it if the future with wasps looked a little bit like the current life that we have with bees. When you go to a garden centre, you can't help but trip over bee hotels or flower mixes to attract bees to your garden. I think there's potential to do this for wasps as well. But having said that, we've got quite a long way to go before we know how to do this. Bee hotels, if they're placed in the right place, will also attract solitary wasps. But bee hotels you tend to put in very sunny places because that's where the bees like to nest, whereas wasps are much more likely to go for a dark, damp place. The flower mixtures that we plant for bees are also good for wasps, but there are sets of flowers that are particularly attractive to wasps. Maybe in the future we'll be having wasp flower mixes sold in garden centres. We don't really have a fantastic understanding of what those mixes would be yet because the data on what flowers wasps like to visit is quite poor and it's likely to be quite different depending on where you are in the world. You might wonder why you would ever want to attract wasps to your garden. I mean, of course, you want them for pest control and pollination, but perhaps you actually want to create a corner of your garden that is wasp attractive. And that would be very far from your patio where you might be having your barbecue and hanging out. So maybe right at the back of the garden behind the shed, you might think of planting these wasp flowers or providing them with wasp friendly habitats where they might want to live. And then you're creating a safe space for the wasps far from you and you're less likely to be antagonising the wasps because it's we who antagonise the wasps, not vice versa. But then of course you'll still benefit from their services in your garden. So in an ideal future, we'd be living in harmony with wasps in our gardens and across the world. Thank you, Professor Serian Sumner. That's a future I can certainly stand behind. I remember there was a point in time where wild bees were thought of as just creepy crawlies, but now we have whole gardens at the Chelsea Flower Show dedicated to them. So if you'd like to plunge further into the depths of this misunderstood insect, pick up Serian's book, Endless Forms, The Secret World of Wasps. When I was growing up, I used to hate wasps. I used to get stung every summer and I didn't really understand the point of them. But the more I learn about ecology and about the environment and the way our gardens really work, the more I understand that they really are important, as Serian was saying. 
But if you do suffer from getting stung, there is a really clever way of discouraging them. You can mimic a wasp nest. There's a product you can buy, it's called a waspinator. Or you can make your own from a balloon or paper mache. It's a good project to do with kids. And what that does is that mimics a wasp nest. And wasps are very territorial, so they won't come near the nest of another colony. And I found that this really genuinely does work. I was a bit surprised at first when I heard about it. I had a lot of wasps coming into my loft put one of these up and they've all just gone. So I know that they can be a nuisance, but as we found out, they really do have value. And if you can just discourage them from areas where you don't want them without killing them, that's a really, really valuable thing. And I think Sarian's advice talking about how wasps are actually really good garden allies is really valuable. And we've talked about yellow jackets, but there are many, many different species of wasps. One that organic gardeners know about is called Encarsia formosa. It's a parasitic wasp, or more correctly, a parasitoid because it's larvae, the pest. And they are brilliant for controlling whitefly in your greenhouse. So if you're starting to find problems, and they can start to be a problem around now as the weather really warms up and there's lots of foliage for them to munch on, don't reach for your spray gun. Wasps can help. And you can order these online. They come through the post and you can just release them into your greenhouse and they, they won't hurt anything else apart from whitefly. And it's a wonderful way of using the power of nature to control problems in the garden. I probably wouldn't have a wasp meadow or I wouldn't really want to have a wasp nest in my garden, but I do leave ground elder to flower on parts of the allotment because that's actually been proven in studies to encourage various species of parasitic wasps into the garden. So it can be a really, really valuable tool. I love the fact that a weed and a wasp can work together and actually two much maligned kind of garden residents can actually work to help the gardener. And it always proves that there are kind of many sides to garden stories. Leaving behind the garden, let's move into the greenhouse where long summer days mean there's lots to grow and harvest. Down at RHS Garden Hyde Hall in an octagonal glass house, surrounded by cucumelons, tomatoes and peppers, we spoke to horticulturist Matthew Oliver about a crowd-pleasing vegetable that can rocket your temperature even further. One of the plants that's really popular at the moment, I'll get asked an awful lot of questions about, be the chilies. Now, I have to admit, I'm not a particular heat lover of uh, chilli in my food, but I've had to learn how to grow these things really well. There's loads of chilli geeks and freaks out there that like growing all the weird and wonderful ones. What I tend to do is, because the purpose of our garden is to try and show the range in diversity amongst the crops, I try and grow an example from every different chili family and try and cover all the different shapes and sizes and all the different colours of fruit. So I've grown quite a large range. There's four or five chili families of which I'm now trying to remember off the top of my head. You've got annuum, pubescens, frutescens and chinense are the four main ones. The easiest ones to grow would be look for a cultivar that's in the capsicum annuum family. Although the name makes them sound like they're annual plants, they're not. You can overwinter them, but they tend to be the ones that are the easiest to grow, but not necessarily the hottest. So if you want hot, then you want to look for, I think it's the chinense and the frutescens types that, that you want, not the annuums. And I suppose another tip I would give is where I grow them in the soil, the plants get very, very big. If you give a chili an opportunity to develop big root run, the plants will get an awful lot bigger than perhaps what it might say on the back of the packet. 
So what I've started to do is grow chilies in pots and then I plunge plant the pot into the soil bed. So effectively I'm not doing anything different from what a home grower would do by growing chilies in pots, which is how I advise you to do it. Because what that does, it helps to bonsai the plant and just stress it out enough to keep it small and strike the right balance between lots and lots of leafy growth at the expense of not much fruit. Whereas if you can bonsai the plant a bit, it might trigger it into flowering a bit more and get more fruit in less space, which is what the home gardener would want to be doing. But the advantage of for me doing that is that I get a better display, basically. Plants are smaller. You can actually see the fruit on it. They're not covered in leaf and there's a decent amount of space around each plant so the visiting public can actually see what I'm growing rather than a, a thicket and a hedge of chilli which just like a green wall. So yeah, that's why we do it but there's growing benefits to it. Unless you're having chilies for breakfast, lunch and dinner every day, a couple of chilli plants, even if they crop late, is probably going to give you enough to make you self-sufficient in chilies, I would say. Thank you, Matthew Oliver. I absolutely agree with Matthew. It is quite easy to get carried away and grow too many chilies. I've whittled myself down. I used to plant a whole greenhouse border with them and then wonder what to do. A couple of plants is generally enough and you can buy them as small plants now to plant out and they will romp away. But, you know, if you do get carried away, they're quite easy to dry. You can dry them in a low oven or sun dry them if, if you live somewhere sunny enough or have a spare greenhouse shelf and then store them in salt over winter in coarse sea salt. That works really well. Make your own chilli sauce or dried chilli flakes. Homemade chilli sauce is brilliant for a birthday or a Christmas present, I know from experience. I grow a few different kinds of chilies. One of the favourite ones I've ever grown was called Numex Twilight. And these are really cool little plants because they're quite tiny, quite bushy, and they have hundreds of tiny little chilies all over them and they change colour from green to yellow to orange to red and then they turn purple and it's just a really really gorgeous thing to have. Another one that I've grown is called Lemon Drop which is one of the Capsicum Baccatum types so it's much taller, the plants are much more open and it has quite a different distinctive flavour, it's really really delicious. So I think it's well worth trying a few different chilies to find your favourites. But heat doesn't always have to come from the most intense sources. And with the sun granting us an extra boost to replicate more tropical habitats, let's have a go at growing something more experimental, spices. We all know that growing your own tastes so much better than some of the bland produce you can get in the supermarket. But when it comes to fresh spices, I don't really know why so many of us don't even try. And that's what food and garden writer Rekka Mystery would like to challenge, as she gives us a handy guide on growing your own turmeric and ginger. of the year we're coming into full-on summer and everything including the weeds say we want to grow and everything's coming up in height literally day by day it's all flourishing and that is what our summer is all about the smells are lovely we've got sweet peas we've got roses the scent is evocative as soon as you walk onto the allotment it's amazing just to just take gentle steps and not like fast speed because there is something now to see in every single corner. I get that kick every year. It's lovely to be just amongst your plants. And that's when you know you're home. You and the plants, that's it. My name is Rekha Mystery and I am a garden writer, food and garden writer, I would say. I love the idea of 
bringing both the garden and the food together. So that's how I was born, so to speak. These are the plants that I would recommend a home gardener can grow, and those are ginger and turmeric. The idea with growing ginger, you can pick up a shop-bought ginger. Try and pick up organic. It's very, I know it's hard to get them, but try and pick up organic because if you buy just the ordinary ginger, they can be fast grown and we don't know what could have been added to those. Whereas the organic one is far better. They'll, they'll be smaller in size. But when you look at that piece of ginger, don't pick up anything. Make sure it's got a little node to it. And that's what you need to trigger growing process. Once you get that, bring it indoors, but don't put it in soil or don't put it in water. Don't, don't do anything to it, just leave it. Let it get stressed out. The minute it gets stressed out, it starts forming the shoot and you know it is good to grow. And that's when I will put that in some peat-free compost. Say it is about three centimeter. Get a, a nine centimeter pot and place some compost in it. Put your ginger, cover it to the point where you can just see the node sticking out. And once you've done that, cover with the plastic and leave it on your windowsill and you will see, uh, water it in and then leave it on the windowsill and you will see within a few days, it will start shooting because you've already started the trigger point. The trigger point is the node. That's the most important. Now, once you've seen a bit of growth through that polythene, take it off and just let it breathe in itself, but do not overwater because overwatering can also bring in pest. It doesn't like being soggy, but it does like redraining soil. So when it comes to sunlight, do not put it in direct sunlight. It prefers indirect sunlight because the more you mother it, it's not going to accept it. And it'll, you'll end up scorching the leaves rather than it taking in a lot of sunlight. If you've never seen where ginger comes from, it grows under the soil. It is not a fruit at all. It's a rhizome, it's a root. But the way of telling that your plant is doing very well is when it shoots out lots of shoots. So the more shoots you see, that means there's forming more rhizomes underneath. So that's a good sign. If you've just got one rhizome, one shoot, I think you might just need to plant a few more. When it comes to harvesting, it's going to take nine months. But I can assure you, it's like a wine. You know, when it matures, it's like a wine. It really, really has the most fragrant taste that you'll ever have. And that's one way of getting hooked onto growing ginger because it becomes a good house plant. You can show it off to your friends saying, oh, look, I can grow my own. And you're actually eating food that I use from that ginger. Yes, it'll take nine months, but it's so worth it in the end. The quality, the aroma and the fragrance stays in your food. It's not something that you think, okay, it's just a back note. It actually is a full on flavor. And finally, turmeric. This is how you grow it. It's from the ginger family. So it's again a rhizome. And what you do with the turmeric is far easier than growing ginger, I find. And it's much more satisfying. So if you want to try one of them, I'd say go for the turmeric. What you do is you take a rhizome and put it three times its depth horizontally. And that way you've got more surface space for shoots to come through. So usually a small three centimeter piece will shoot out three shoots. And then once you find that, immediately pot it onto a bigger 10 litre pot or even bigger because they really need space. So from a very small rhizome, you can have at least 
10 to 12 plants coming through and it's amazing what you can get out of one small one pound turmeric and again you can pick up a piece of turmeric from a shop i've always gone to a indian supermarket and always bought them from there because i know they'll be fresh but if you haven't i know supermarkets now carry these things because there's a lot of people who sort of bang their doors and say we need fresh produce and a piece of turmeric with a little bit of node will be your seed. Now it's seeded, this is what you need to do. Pot it on into a bigger pot and once it gets going, turmeric will need sunlight. Unlike its sister Ginger, she needs sunlight. She really likes to romp away in that glorious sun that we have. And the minute you see that, that means it also needs a good feed. A good feed and a good watering. The leaf structure is so much more different, it's so much more flamboyant. So you know that it needs a lot of work to it. But once it gets going, you just have to keep that regime going for at least three months of its summer months. And it's worked, I've had a really good crop from just one little tiny rhizome. So by growing in July, there is no harm in that. It'll just die back over the winter months because you brought it indoors and because it's warm indoors, in January, February, you'll start seeing a bit of movement saying, oh, I'd like to grow again. So it'll start growing. And by July, the following year, you will have a really good crop underneath. When I went to the Asian supermarket and I saw fresh turmeric and you hold fresh turmeric, you smell that. You don't smell the powder version. You smell a really nice aromatic version that there is a totally different smell. And the minute I harvested my very first own turmeric i could not believe that even my hands was turning orange because it was so fresh it was the most wonderful smell and that has always got me going saying if i wanted to kick myself up in the winter thinking i need to do something that's one thing i will do is find myself a rhizome and grow it again because that's something that gives you the pleasure the aroma of turmeric is like no other Now, when I've grown my own ginger, what I like to do is not make a curry out of it. That's just norm. What I like to make is a ginger cake because you are using the finest item that you can find and you know it's the freshest of the fresh and the taste of the ginger cake is amazing. And so it's, it's the most simplest thing I can make and I can share it with a lot more than just the family. Once I've given this cake to my friends and family, it's amazing. They think, wow, actually I saw it in that little bucket in your home and it was growing and it's that. I said, oh yeah, that's the one. And there was rhizome underneath and that's what I used. And it's an amazing feeling. It's a small bucket and that fed more than five people, which is nice. It's actually a lovely feeling. <laughs> Leaving behind our dessert, now we go for the mains. What I like to make with my own grown turmeric is ravioli. And I know the Italians will be now saying, oh, come on, you know, you can't. But I'm making a fusion dish. I like both Indian and I like Italian. And why not mix the two together? And so with the turmeric, grate it. And all you have to do is put it into the flour mix and it will just color your flour. You will get the hint of turmeric in there because it's not powerful. It only gets powerful as it dries. So you're just getting a really hum in the ravioli, but it's the most amazing, amazing texture color given to a piece of ravioli. Someone might think you've put saffron, but it's not, it's actually turmeric. It's a brilliant dinner party wowzer kind of a 
a meal, so to speak. So you've got all the flavors within the pasta, not just the flavors, you've grown everything. It's just a lot of flavors within a small plate and it's the best dinner party dish I could offer my guests. These are such versatile spices. It would be a shame not to try something different with them. Just go for it, just go mad. Thanks to Wrecker Mystery. I've never tried growing either ginger or turmeric, but I'm really inspired to have a go. I love the idea of serving up a beautiful curry or a lovely cake to my friends with these beautiful exotic flavours and them being something that I've grown myself. I think that's really, really cool. So I'm going to give it a go. And growing from fresh, you do get a kind of flavour that you can't buy. And that's one of the reasons I'm a gardener, I think, is because that is a flavour that just is incomparable. Well, I hope today's episode hasn't baked you alive. And talking of baking, if your greenhouse is really nice and sunny on an allotment or something with no shade on it, it can be really, really valuable to just paint a bit of liquid shading over the roof panes or throw a bit of shade netting over it just to stop it overheating on those really hot days. And of course, at this time of year, watering is really, really important. It's worth remembering that it is a gardening myth that watering your plants when it's sunny is gonna cause the leaves to scorch. It's not true. Best time of day to water your plants is first thing in the morning, but if you can only go out at your lunch break, water them then, it's fine. The important thing is that you water when the plants need it. But don't water too much as well, because for example, with peat-free composts, the top can look really dry. We've all got our own soil moisture meters. It's called a finger, stick your finger in. Go down to the first knuckle and if you can feel moisture, you're okay. If you can't, time to get the watering can out. So until next time from me, Gareth Richards, stay happy and hydrated. Thanks for listening. I'm walking down the path in my garden and I have a suggestion for you on how you could help with global warming. With a large lawn, I found a simple way of making a big difference. I sold my ride-on mower and bought a top-of-the-range Cress robotic lawnmower. It runs off rechargeable batteries and uses cutting-edge technology to mow and maintain a lawn this size. The petrol mower has gone and with it, the emissions. I actually don't know why I didn't sell the ride-on sooner. With the Cress robotic lawnmower, the lawn is actually looking better. The tiny grass cuttings fall into the grass roots, helping to fertilize the grass. And the family doesn't have to put up with the noise and fumes from the ride-on. And I've freed up more of my time to spend with them and in the garden. It's an easy step. And you could also be making that change today. Ask for Cress in your local garden machinery dealer. Or visit cress.com. Discover the beauty of an RHS membership all year round. Save 25% off an RHS membership today when paying by direct debit. Prices start at just £55.50. With a membership, you'll gain access to an array of special events at our gardens all year round. Be the first to know about RHS flower shows and get exclusive member-only days plus reduced rate tickets. 
and you'll have the chance to enhance your gardening know-how with access to free expert garden advice, monthly editions of The Garden magazine, and so much more. Terms and conditions apply. <laughs>